The following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. Welcome to Homecoming, everybody. So good to see you. Yes. Balcony, I see you guys up there. And for those of you who are watching in the commons or watching online, we are thrilled that you are part of this day as we are here together. Today is a day that we set aside, we put on the calendar months ago just to be a day that we could be together and celebrate being together because we believe that being together is a reason to celebrate. It's a day to invite everybody that calls IBC home to, to, to be with us, whether you're here in the room, whether you're joining online, and also a day to invite friends and family and coworkers to come and find a home at IBC. Today is a day for us to throw a really big party. But let's be really honest. We Christians don't exactly have the reputation for being party people, do we? Right? Like, uh, I mean, we're not known for being the life of the party. And that's a terrible shame. Because Jesus was. Jesus was known for being the life of the party. Jesus was constantly getting, getting in trouble with the uptight religious people because of who he partied with. Jesus was the life of the party and Jesus brought the joy. I love what Lewis Smeads says when he says, you and I were created for joy. And if we miss it, we miss the reason for our existence. Friends, you and I were made for joy. But perhaps you grew up in the kind of Christianity that, that many of us did, a Christianity that wasn't known for partying, a Christianity that wasn't known for joy. Maybe you grew up in a version of Christianity that was a lot like that described by H.L. Mencken, who said that Christianity is a haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. <laughs> right? Maybe you grew up in a church like I did where people just seemed to be angry about something all the time. That's not what Jesus came to bring. The thing that Jesus uh, constantly found himself in trouble for, the thing that Jesus was most known for, was for who he partied with, for eating together with the the messy people, the dirty people, the the broken people. Jesus was known for, for who he partied with, who he ate with. And Jesus' message, his, his gospel, his good news that he preached was about the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, the, the reign of God, what the world looks like when God has his way. And you know the way that Jesus characterized that inbreaking kingdom time and time and time again in his preaching? A feast, a banquet, a wedding, party. And so today is homecoming. Today is a a day for us to to throw a big party. And when I thought about that idea of homecoming, and I I thought about a party, I I thought about a story that Jesus told that's about just that. A story of a homecoming and a story of a party. It's a story told in the book of Luke chapter 15. So if you have your Bible, you have it on your device, you want to turn there with me. Luke chapter 15, a story of a homecoming, a story of a party. 
It's one of Jesus' most well-known stories. In fact, if you're with us this morning and, and maybe you really haven't been a part of church in a long time or maybe you've really never been a part of church at all, I think chances are good that you may still be familiar with this story because Jesus was a master storyteller. I think about it. How many other storytellers from two millennia ago do, do you know the stories? Do, do you know the storytellers? Jesus was a master storyteller, and this is one of his most famous stories. And the thing about Jesus, when he, when he told stories, part of what was so powerful is that Jesus' stories weren't just simple little illustrations to make a, a, a point about moral living. Jesus' stories were stories about the inbreaking kingdom of God, about what it looks like when God gets his way. And Jesus told these stories in such a way that his listeners were drawn into the story. That Jesus told these stories in such a way that, that those who listened were supposed to find themselves in the story and then determine how they would respond. And this morning, we are Jesus' audience. That we are supposed to find ourselves in the story that Jesus tells And friends, this morning, I I believe this story is for you and for me. This isn't just a story for our neighbor down the street who's got a wayward child. This isn't just a story for somebody at work who needs to get their life straight. This is a story for you. It's a story for me. And we're supposed to find ourselves in the story. Now, Luke 15 opens up with Jesus, as I mentioned, getting in trouble with the religious establishment. He's got all these people that have gathered around him. They're called tax collectors and sinners. These are the messy people. These are the dirty people. These are the broken people. And they flock to Jesus. They are drawn to Jesus like moth to a flame. And the religious establishment gets so bent out of shape about this. They're mad at Jesus because he is eating with the messy people, with the broken people, with the dirty people. How could he do that? How could he sit down and and have a meal with those kind of people? And in response, as he is surrounded by an audience of the messy people, the broken people, the dirty people, as he's surrounded by an audience of the uptight religious folks, Jesus tells three stories. A story about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. Each story follows a pattern. Something is lost, something is found, and there's a celebration. And each story sort of ups the ante from the one before it. That the first one is one out of a hundred. The second is one out of ten. And the last one is one out of two. One out of a hundred sheep, one out of ten coins, one out of two sons. But it's only this last story that actually is told in two acts. And it's only in act two of the story do we discover that in fact, both sons are lost? Let's look together in Act 1, Luke chapter 15, beginning of verse 11. We read this. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property evenly between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and he set off to a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth and wild living. 
So this younger son goes to his father and says, dad, I want you to split up the inheritance now. As the younger son, he would have actually gotten a third. The, the older brother that got the majority of the inheritance, he got two thirds. The, the younger son got one third. And he goes to, to dad and says, I want it now. This is, culturally speaking, incredibly insulting. Some of you know a little bit about my family. You know that, that in our home, we're a three-generation family. My mother lives with us. She's been a widow for about 22 years. She's lived with us for about the last 12 years. And every once in a while, when my mom makes a big purchase or my mom plans a big trip, she'll say to me, I'm spending your inheritance. <laughs> Can you imagine how insulting it would be for me to go to mom and say, can you give me my inheritance now? It's a way of saying, I'm tired of waiting around for you to die. And that's what this son is saying to his father. Dad, I'm, I'm tired of waiting for you to die. Can you just give me my inheritance now? Here's the remarkable thing. The father gives it to him. God has endowed us with freedom. Even the freedom to run from him. And I was thinking about it this week. I was thinking about sin. And, and I, I know that for, for some in these days, it, it, it sort of feels like sin is kind of an outdated concept, right? It, it, it feels like that's just from sort of a, a bygone kind of, but I was thinking about sin. And I was thinking about the fact that sin is living like we wish God were dead. That when, when we choose to commit sin, we're saying, God, could you just, could you just leave me alone? Could, could you just look away? God, can I just do my own thing? Can I live my own life? Can I go my own way? Can you just leave me alone? God, I, I, I wish you were dead. That's what the son says to his father and the father lets him run. The father doesn't say, how dare you? You miserable, no good, ungrateful. No, he gives him the inheritance. God gives us the freedom to run and and sometimes even blesses us when we're running from him. This son takes all he has and he, he goes away to a distant country. And in my imagination, as I've been thinking about this, this story, in my imagination, the distant country is Chicago. <laughs> you can pray for me this week because my wife and I get in a car on Wednesday and we drive our oldest child to Chicago and leave him there. This week, my son, Will, heads off to DePaul University in Lincoln Park, right there in the heart of Chicago. And we're so excited for him, right? He, he's leaving home on very different circumstances than the kid in this story. And yet, it's still a long way away. 839 miles to be exact. 13 hours and 46 minutes from my house to DePaul campus. It's a long way away. And this son, under very different circumstances, is a long way from home. 
He's a long way from his father's love. He's a long way from his father's care. He's a long way from his father's protection and provision. And it says that he squandered his wealth on wild living. I wonder how many of you know from experience that God will teach you lessons from life that you could never learn in Sunday school, right? This kid squanders everything he had on wild living. And let me ask you, why did this kid run? Think about it. Why did he run? It seemed like he had a pretty good life. It seemed like he had a pretty good dad. Why, why does he run? And the fact of the matter is that we don't know. We're not given the answer in the story. We, we don't know why he ran. But we know what it feels like, don't we? To want to run sometimes from the reality of our lives. I mean, like, think about the last 18 months, right? We've lived through some pretty heavy reality. And some of us have found ourselves prone to want to run from it. Prone to want to run away from the life that we're living and to find something that'll help us to feel a little better. Like, uh, I wonder if there's any of you, and statistics would say there are, who over the course of the last 18 months has found yourself back experiencing a struggle or an addiction that you thought you'd left in the past. I wonder if some of you, and statistics would say that there are, have found yourself feeling like maybe your drinking has gotten a little out of control. Maybe you've come to need it just a little bit too much. I wonder if there are any of you and statistics would say there are for whom porn has become compulsive or your spending has, has gotten carried away or you turn to, to food for comfort and so more is always better. Or maybe you find yourself yelling and screaming when you, when you told yourself you, you were going to keep it under control. We don't know why the boy ran, but we know what it feels like, don't we? And the thing is, sometimes what we run to feels like it's working. I mean, don't we have to just be honest about that? Sometimes what we run to feels like it's working. I have to think that was true for this kid, right? He moves to a distant country and just starts throwing big parties and, and he is the life of the party. Like everybody wants to come to this guy's party. It feels pretty good for a while until it all runs out. And that's the way that it is with sin. That it, that it always takes us farther than we wanted to go. It always keeps us longer than we wanted to stay. It always costs us more than we wanted to pay. It always leaves us empty. This guy finds himself in that place, but, but then what happens is the circumstances actually go from bad to worse. Look, look what happens next. Verse 14. 
After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. This situation goes from bad to worse because he spent everything that he had and now there's a famine that's afflicted the whole land. And, and, and those of us who, who live a relatively comfortable suburban existence don't really feel the weight of that word famine. But in the ancient world, a famine was devastating. A famine left people lying dead from hunger. We have ancient accounts actually of people becoming cannibals to feed themselves in the midst of severe famine. This kid finds himself now in a set of circumstances that have gone from bad to worse. He spent everything he had. There's a famine in the land. He attaches himself to one of the citizens of that country who sends him into the field to feed the pigs. And then this was to be scandalous for Jesus' original hearers, not the pigs. Because for a good Jewish boy who saw pigs as unclean and for understandable kinds of reasons, to, to, to be in the field, in the muck, in the mire with the pigs is about as low as you can get. And he found himself there with the pigs covered in the pigs, the filth, the stench. And he found himself looking at the pigs, eating these pods, these carob pods that grew on these bushes, these carob trees around the Mediterranean world. These carob trees are all over the place. There's plenty of these pods that are used to feed pigs, but they're inedible for people. And he found himself so desperate that he was envious of what the pigs were eating. And then he has a bit of an aha moment. Look with me. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and I will go back to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. That little phrase Translated here, came to his senses. Literally, he came to himself. And sometimes when the story is told, it's told as though this is his moment of repentance. But I think that actually misses what's happening in the story. Because notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I've broken my father's heart. He doesn't say, I have, I have shamed my family in front of our village, in front of our community. He doesn't say, I've done something so wrong and I've got to go make it right. What he says is, I've got to eat. And he he writes this little speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, which by the way, a good uh, careful Bible reader will note the very same words that Pharaoh used to Moses in the midst of the plagues. Where Pharaoh's actually trying to make a deal with Moses and his God to get out of the trouble that he's found himself in. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. Give me a job and I'll save up my money and I'll pay you back. I'll make it up to you. This guy is deeply lost in this moment because what his heart says 
because I've been really bad and I owe you. I've been really bad and I owe you, but I'm going to make it up to you. I'm, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to deal with this. Right? I'm going to make it all okay. Just, just trust me. I'll take care of it. I'll fix it. I've been really bad and, and I owe you. And in this moment, he is desperately lost as long as he thinks he can fix it himself. I've had the chance to get to know and, and, uh, and hear from to work with the leaders of our recovery ministry here at IBC. And one of those leaders shared with me a little bit of his story. And he talked about the fact that he said, I used to think that drinking was my problem until I entered in recovery. And when I started in recovery, what I came to realize was that drinking isn't my problem. Drinking was the solution that I was trying to apply to my problem. My problem was I was trying to make life work in my own strength, in my own power. And that the way I was trying to cope with that was by drinking. The the, the alcohol was the solution to the deeper problem. And that's why the very first step of the 12 steps is I have realized that I am powerless and my life has become unmanageable. I can't save myself. But the boy isn't there yet. So he gets up and he leaves and he heads back to his dad. But right there in the middle of verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine who was dead is alive again. He was lost and is found So they begin to celebrate. If you're familiar with the story and a bit of its cultural background, you may know that what the father does here is scandalous. He does something that no father in the ancient Middle Eastern world would ever have done by running to his son. For him to run required him to gather up his robe, perhaps to tuck it into his belt, to expose his legs and to run. And this would have been considered shameful, disgraceful. No older man, a boy might do that, but no older man would ever run. But this father sees the son a long way off and he runs to him. Now, Our imaginations, shaped by our 21st century conceptions of things, oftentimes sort of imagine this scene as if the father sort of lives out in the country and maybe has a a long driveway. I think in my mind, it's like this long gravel driveway. and And he saw his kid coming through the gate and he ran the whole length of the driveway. But the ancient readers would actually have a very different imagination because they lived in villages. And the life of their family was intimately connected to the life of the village. And uh, a scholar named Kenneth Bailey, who spent his entire career, a New Testament scholar, living and teaching in Middle Eastern context, provides some cultural background where he talks about something that would have been in the minds and the imagination of the original hearers of Jesus' story. A ceremony called Kazaza. 
And kazaza was, was something that would happen for two reasons. If a young man had married a promiscuous woman, or if a young man had lost his wealth among the Gentiles, there would be a ceremony that would happen at the gates of the city. If that young man ever dared to show his face again, there would be a ceremony at the gates of the city where the city elders would gather together to hear this man's story, to hear what happened. The father wouldn't even be allowed to come to the Kazaza ceremony. And they would listen to what this young man had done. If he had married a promiscuous woman, he had lost his inheritance among the Gentiles. And they would take a pot, a clay pot, filled with burnt corn and nuts. They would take that pot and they would throw it down at the, at the young man's feet. And they would say, kazaza, which in Hebrew means cut off. You are cut off, not just from this family. You are cut off from this community. You are cut off from this village. You are out of here. And perhaps this man had heard tell that his boy was on the way home. This man isn't standing on the porch looking down a long gravel gravel driveway. This man is standing at the gates of the city and he sees his boy and he runs to him and says, nobody, nothing will stand between me and my boy. Nobody is cutting him off from my love. And he runs to his son. He embraces him and the son is still covered with the filth of the pigs. Which means now the father has taken on his filth. The father embraces the son, says nothing and nobody is going to get between me and my boy. The father embraces him and he kisses him. And he says, bring the robe and cover his filth. Bring the ring of my authority and put it on his finger. Bring the the sandals and, and put them on his feet. And he walks back into town with his boy. Now for anybody to say anything about that boy is to dishonor that father. Because when they look at the boy, they don't see the boy's filth. They see the father's glory. When they look at that boy, they don't see the boy's shame. They see the father's grace. Nothing is going to stand between me and my boy. He says, kill the fatted calf. In that ancient world, they, they rarely actually ate meat. Because it was just scarce. If they did, it was probably meat from a goat. But there would be a calf that they would feed grain if there was a big celebration that they were anticipating to get it good and fat. And the father says, we're having a barbecue. Right? We're having a party. But then, act two. Right? Every other story, there's one out of 100 lost, found, celebration. One out of 10 lost, found, celebration. One out of two now lost, found, celebration. But only in this story, there's an act two. There's another brother. And we read about him beginning in verse 20. My eyes are not working very well. 25. <laughs> Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house and heard the music and the dancing, he heard the dancing. I mean, they are getting their party started. So he called, uh, he's called out to one of the servants and he asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come home, he replied. And your father has killed a fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry. He refused to go in. What, what the older brother does here is a really big deal. It's every bit as big a deal as the other kid leaving town. It's, it's a way publicly 
refusing to go into his father's party to say, I want no part of this. I want no part of this family. I want no part of this party. I want no part of my father. It would have been a public shaming of the father because of the grace that he's shown to this wayward son. And yet the father goes out to him. So the father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes, which by the way is a detail that he's added to the story. Maybe he thinks this is what I would do if I was him, but anyway. When this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything that I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. For the father to be the one that gets up and leaves the party to go to his son is every bit as shocking and scandalous as when the father ran to the younger son. For him to be the one that gets up and goes out to to see the older one. Again, we would expect the father to say, get him out of here. You don't want to come in? Fine. But no, no, no. The father goes to him and pleads with him. Come in. Come home. Come join the party. Come join the celebration. Here's the thing. Notice what the what the older son said. The the younger son had said, I've been really bad and I owe you. The older son says, I've been really good. You owe me. And both of those conditions leave the sons in the same place. Lost. The only way they're ever found is by receiving the extravagant, self-sacrificial love of the Father. The love of the Father that's willing to embrace us even in our filth. The love of the Father that's willing to take on our shame. And here's the thing. What happens next? How How does the story end? We don't know. It, 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 it's missing an ending. Well, how, how's the older brother going to respond? We don't know. Part of the power of the story it's, is found in its missing ending. Because remember who's listening. The messy, dirty, broken people. And the uptight religious folks. And Jesus' intention in telling his stories is that everybody listening, his audience, would find themselves in the story and determine how are they going to respond. And this morning, we are the audience of Jesus' story. We are meant to find ourselves in the story. How will we respond? Two boys both loved, both lost, both invited. Come home. 
Let's pray together. In the quietness of this moment, as our our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I, I just wonder if there's some in the room that need to to hear and find themselves in the story and respond this morning. Some who maybe have said, I've been bad and I owe you, or I've been good and you owe me. But to recognize instead that the, the only way that we are found is by receiving the extravagant, self-sacrificial love of the Father. And maybe today you need to, I don't know where you've been. I don't know what you've done. I don't know where you've gone, how you've run, but you need to hear the invitation today. Come home. And maybe it's a little old fashioned of me, but I wonder if just in this moment that you want to respond and say, Father, I want to come home today. And you would just slip up your hand just as a way of saying to God, I want to come home. I wanna give my life to you. I wanna give my life back to you. I wanna receive your love. I wanna receive your grace. Would you just slip up your hand right where you're seated this morning? I wanna come home. Father, thank you. Thank you that you welcome us. Thank you for each person here who's raised their hand this morning and for the way in which they're responding to your invitation. God, all of us are meant to find ourselves in this story today and to respond. So help us wherever we are, wherever we've been, whatever we've done, to respond to your invitation today, to receive your embrace, to receive your extravagant self-sacrificial love. We thank you and praise you for this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.